0: I cannot live without brain work. What else is there to live for? Stand at the window here. Was ever such a dreary, dismal, unprofitable world? See how the yellow fog swirls down the street and drifts across the dun-colored houses. What could be more hopelessly prosaic and material? What is the use of having powers, doctor, when one has no field upon which to exert them? Crime is commonplace. Existence is commonplace. And no qualities save those which are commonplace have any function upon earth
1: this is the explosive story of the karamazov family the seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common
0: to The Readers Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel.
2: I am Karl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy.
0: And I'm Soren Reargaard. Welcome back, listeners. We are glad to have you with us. Um, A few items of business, as always, before we get started tonight. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at The Readers K., You can email us at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com with any questions or comments. You can uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, other things like that. Just a quick announcement, we are going to be shutting down our Facebook page, mostly because I am getting off of Facebook and uh, don't want to run it anymore, so it won't be there. But you can follow us on Twitter and please do that and keep up with us in that way. Um, We're back tonight. We are starting a new section of our season on The Name of the Rose. This new section is called Mystery. We're connecting back, of course, to The Name of the Rose, which has maybe a central mystery and then a bunch of other mysteries floating around it. Um, And so we've picked three books related to uh, the idea of mystery. We're starting tonight with Friedrich's pick for the section, which is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes Mystery. The Sign of the Four. As always, I'm going to give a brief plot summary, and then I'm going to throw it over to Friedrich to tell us why he picked this for us. So, The Sign of the Four. My title, by the way,
1: is The Sign of Four.
0: The Sign of Four. I've seen it both ways, actually. I thought it was... And I think
1: I have two, but I was just checking if yours is different. Yeah,
0: no, it's mine. I I originally had written it, I think, for the season as The Sign of Four, and then I've seen it Mm -hmm. other places as The Sign of the Four. So, opinions vary. But uh, I think
2: it was originally the sign of the four, and then the the second the
0: was dropped. Okay, there we go. My old school annotated Sherlock Holmes ha- still has it as the sign of the four, so who knows? But the sign of brackets, the four, <laughs> is uh, one of the longer uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. I, I think it qualifies as a novel or a novella on the longer side for the, for the stories, maybe not quite a novel, but it is maybe not quite as well known, at least in the States, as some of the other stories. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this one tonight. But it, like all Sherlock Holmes stories, it, of course, involves Sherlock Holmes and his faithful companion, Dr. Watson, solving mysteries. In this case, we start at the beginning. Sherlock Holmes is very bored, and so, of course, he's strung out on cocaine. And um, then in walks a Ms. Morstan, And she comes with a story about how her father has died. um, And ever since, she's been receiving mysterious little pearls in the mail. And then she recently received a letter saying she should come and meet to discuss her fortunes. So she brings with her Watson and Holmes. And what they discover along the way is that her father had been involved in a sort of scandal while being a colonial administrator in India. And he and this other man, Sholto, had, between the two of them, found this treasure and had carried it back to Britain. Um, They discover that Sholto is also dead, but his two sons, Thaddeus and Bartholomew, have taken control of the treasure. And now Thaddeus wants to make restitution to her, who has been sort of shut out, give her the treasure. However, when Thaddeus takes them to go meet Bartholomew, they discover that Bartholomew has been murdered in his house and the treasure is gone. And so, off from there starts the mystery Holmes works to hunt down the real killer, which, uh, spoiler alert, the thief and the killer is a man named Jonathan Small, who was a prisoner in the Indian prison and had been one of the first people to find the treasure, basically had it stolen from him by Sholto, and Morstan decided to enact revenge for him and his compatriots, and so comes to Britain with a, an islander who's sort of an assassin, and they come and steal the treasure and kill Bartholomew take it away and uh, Holmes works to, to hunt them down and then they f- eventually find the treasure but discover that it's been tossed away because the Small refuses to let anyone have it. They get the whole story from him. It turns out Sholto and Morstan were not very good guys. They basically stole it from him and his companions. We end the story somewhat happily because over the course of the story, alongside of all the mystery, Watson's been getting his game on, has been wooing Mrs. Morstan, but is concerned that if she has this treasure, he won't be able to propose to her. Lo and behold, the treasure's gone, so she's free, and they end up holding hands very nicely at the end. Meanwhile, Holmes is bored <laughs> again, so he's going to start shooting up cocaine. So we're back where we started. Uh, A nice little mystery, a lot going on. I, I would say somewhat unconventional in some ways, or not what I think of as a typical Holmes story. So I think we'll talk about that a little bit. First, though, I wanted to toss it over to Friedrich. I will say I feel maybe the dumbest I've ever felt asking this question, which is why this book for this section, it feels kind of dumb to ask, why did you pick a Sherlock Holmes story? It's like, why did you order the baby back ribs at Chili's, right?
2: I want my baby back, baby back, baby back,
0: baby. My baby back chili, baby backs, baby baby back what else are you supposed to do? <laughs> but Barbecue sauce. But I'm interested to know, Friedrich, why, why this story in particular, why not one of the other ones, and, and what you think um, you want to get out of our discussion tonight. So I'm going to toss it over to you.
1: Uh, thanks for all that, Soren. That's a great summary of a sort of a messy book for how short it is. I think the main reason, addressing the obvious question of uh, why Sherlock Holmes William of Baskerville uh, has a lot of connections to Sherlock Holmes, as we remember from our first few episodes of this season, and the dynamic between William of Baskerville and Adso is somewhat Holmesian and Watsonian. Uh, So, you know, it makes sense to be reading Sherlock Holmes. Why The Sign of Four, though, is a good question. Part of the reason that I wanted to talk about this one this season is because it finds us in... Historically, it finds us in Holmes territory when Holmes is, like, beginning to become... Holmes, as we now know him, is a cultural figure. A Study in Scarlet's written as like a one-off story uh, by Conan Doyle. He's just writing stories. But then he's commissioned by an American magazine at a dinner with Oscar Wilde, where Oscar Wilde's also commissioned to write Dorian Gray, to produce another Holmes story. And he produces this one. And then he continues to produce them for the next few years before killing him off. But then Conan Doyle returns to Holmes again later and continues to produce. So he sort of, like, becomes... The detective figure with this as a sort of second beginning. So that to me is interesting, even though it maybe doesn't provide us with a lot to talk about for today. But it's also the, as you said, unconventional story in that it it really globally expands outward very quickly. Covers a lot of imperial ground, brings in questions about class, obviously, in the relationship they discussed, but race and sexuality as well, with Holmes sort of being the housekeeper as well as the leader of this couple and their weird pairing, Jonathan Small and Tonga, who are, are somewhat like them. And then, more generally, you know, it's just nice to begin with the sort of familiar character to discuss the mystery genre, I think, and to talk about what's interesting about the mystery novel to us. Are there things that are philosophically interesting about a mystery novel? Things that are socially interesting about a mystery novel or things that are just stimulating uh, like the cocaine pipe or the cocaine needle?
2: Yeah, I was surprised in returning to Holmes, which I've only read a few of the Holmes stories, but I had read this one before, how much social aspects there are to it obviously very dated but very interesting nonetheless with the the colony and the metropole going on in this one and then i think it's the critic brian McHale says something like the the detective novel is sort of the most epistemological mm. of uh, forms and echo i know has many things to say about that when he was thinking of writing the name of the rose but you see a lot of that and the the epistemology of homes is pretty interesting returning to it now i found it pretty surprising how much the quote-unquote deduction of homes as i was suspicious of before in previous (laughs) episodes is just a very intense sort of british social typology almost (laughs) all throughout the deduction is often the case of holmes saying well it would be impossible for anyone except for a person of this british minute social type to do this thing and so therefore it must be this kind of person so there's an interesting kind of like social imaginary going on with conan doyle that i was a little bit more um keen to this time through
0: let's let's start there then carl thanks for bringing us there because i was struck in the very beginning before the story really gets going holmes is talking about this other like french detective that he knows and he says you know maybe someday he's he'll be a really good detective he's got two of the three qualities you need he's got observation He's got deduction. What he doesn't have is knowledge. And I thought that was Mm -hmm. a really interesting wrinkle to add in. And this sort of speaks to what you're saying, Carl. So obviously, observation is the ability to look around you and see what's there. And, you know, that's very Holmesian, of course. Notice the small things, the burning ash or whatever. And then deduction. How do you get, you know, how do you go from that observation to a conclusion? But then this other piece of knowledge. And he says, like, you have to know basically, like, all these different types of cigars, or like these different mm-hmm. types of guns, and all these different things. Yeah, it's
2: a typology. It is
0: a type. You have to have this worldly knowledge of just things, like a thinginess. And I was, I, I was really struck by how thingy this book is. My annotated version, which is really quite delightful, even provides potential recipes when they have they sit down to cool. dinner because it's like he's got a brace <laughs> of hens, and like, and they're like maybe oh he had this God. apricot pie to go with it, right? It's it's a very It's a very material book in a lot of ways, in some ways that I really hadn't thought about. You tend to think maybe even of Holmes as being very, you know, the armchair detective, the thinking in the world of abstract thought. But here he is very embedded in this physical material world. And so I'm wondering how that idea of knowledge being this important prerequisite for the detective, how does that change our understanding of the typical Holmesian deduction?
2: It's a really interesting portrait to me of like a Bertrand Russell style, like logic, you know, it's like a logicism where the atomic logical sentences, if we just have enough of them, we will all be able to deduce the correct outcome. And there's that kind of like Kantian practical knowledge, like Soren was just talking about. Once one gets a sense of all of the items um, and inventories them in one's head or something, then... It's just a matter of knowing, you know, the different imprints of them out there in the world and deducing from there. But something like like racial passing is like totally outside of the mind mm-hmm. of, of Holmes at multiple points in this book. So it's just pretty, it's pretty interesting,
1: the portrait of epistemology that Doyle is giving us. I think too, that there's a sort of um, self-conscious depiction of Holmes as the... Apex of the Victorian polymath who obviously can do everything and can learn everything. But as Carl's saying, the novel seems sort of invested in saying, and if you can do all that, then you can know how a person chose to do something or how a person behaved in a certain setting. If you can collect all of this material data, then you can predict behaviors, which was not probably outside the realm of orthodox thinking in the 19th century. Right. And it's interesting that the, the book seems self-aware of that in a few moments when Watson, our human observer of this action, as opposed to our inhuman Holmes, calls him an automaton and a calculating machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and Holmes all but confirms that and says, yeah, a client to me is a mere unit, a factor in a problem. He's sort of like in a utilitarian dream or something like that he sees people as numbers he sees people as factors as data carl you're gonna say something
2: oh yeah i mean this is like a groundbreaking kind of character right he's like Mm -hmm. holmes is in the pantheon you know of like timeless characters but I was really surprised um going back to this how that passage and then a later passage where someone is talking about statistics it seems like still kind of ahead of the curve to think of holmes almost like a ai or like an algorithm there's something very algorithmic in how he's like trying to deduce and deduce and deduce and there are you know today ai's out trying to solve crimes so they're probably very holmesian in how they look at data and how they might
1: misinterpret data as well but it's pretty interesting. I I wanted to ask about this, but not, without taking us too far away from the book at hand. That remember when the the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes came out, the modern day BBC Sherlock Holmes. There was sort of this Holmes Renaissance for a little bit.
2: Oh yeah, there's and like twenty it seems, shows.
1: Yeah, and it seems totally yeah with the Lucy Liu show too. That's right. It seems mm-hmm. totally connected to the world of like tech and mm-hmm. the sort of tech CEO caricature of someone who only thinks of people as numbers and algorithms. And that's sort of like laudable or something like that today.
0: I think that this idea of Holmes as essentially only seeing his cases as a series of patterns to be resolved or however you want to phrase that, which he very readily admits these people mean nothing to me. And in fact, he says I cannot get attached to people because then emotion would cloud Mm -hmm. my reason. I wouldn't be able to solve these things if I was invested in them. He's obviously at play here, but then I wonder, like, why is it that we then have that balanced with Watson, who is prone to these emotional attachments? Clearly, he, he... Gets, I don't not, not quite engaged to Miss Morstan here, but like they, they clearly have a thing going on. And he provides that counterbalance, and yet he's still there as a figure who's important to Holmes in one way or another, whether that's merely as some sort of sounding board slash whipping boy or something like to, to kind of have these theories worked out upon him. But he's there and he plays some sort of essential role. And of course, he himself is the one narrating the story and writing it down and telling all these things. And so it does seem like Doyle seems aware of the need for some sort of balance, even if it's just at the narrative level between the, th- the, the merely computing brain and then the sort of feeling that Watson provides to the stories.
2: I think that's definitely an, a really important point. I think the, they are a duo. And in all these modern iterations, too, you have famous people also playing watson and they he's got that like vaudeville straight man kind of pos- how could you have possibly known that and then uh, just launches um homes into his you know quote unquote deductions of how he figured everything out but yeah that's a great point so that he is the narrator as well and it gets back to that classic british empiricism as well reason ought to be the charioteer of the passions and such, but the passions are still there to propel the chariot forward, right? To drive the story forward and we need an attachment to emotions to compel us through a plot to be attached to characters. And that's why someone has to have an attachment made in this story, right? So at least it's Watson.
1: Where did we land in our discussion of of the name of the rose with AdSos Totally like embodied feeling of attraction to this woman connected to this transcendent divinity when he looks at the artworks as the sort of counterbalance to William of Baskerville. Because obviously, Echo's harnessing that familiar Watson narrator in the person of Ad. So, where do we land on that? I'm trying to think of where we landed with the thinking, feeling pre Herman Hesse episode discussion. Hey, don't ask us to remember directly previous episodes, man. It's been too much food eaten and yeah. drinks drank for us to know that kind of thing. Yeah, those uh, spicy meat approximation sticks really zapped the memory from us. That's right. There, there's a those functional are the real transcendent experiences. <laughs> there's definitely a functional reason to have a narrator who's human, right, and who learns things and who has an arc. But well, yeah, your question is more about what is the thematic purpose behind that what is more interesting about that maybe
0: it strikes me that one of the things that one of the the recurrent themes in this story and one of the problems like you might say of being Sherlock Holmes or the reason that you don't want to live in a world with only Sherlock Holmes is he seems very plagued by boredom but I would even frame it more strongly than that I would say maybe ennui or something oh yeah and and uh, there's a the, the passage that I read at the beginning of this episode where he's sort of looking out at the world and is saying everything's so so mediocre I'm just I'm just bored by everything it really strikes me as a, as a key to understanding this particular problem that arises at the human level for, from approaching the world in this way and Watson even though of course he has one-tenth of the skill of Holmes is maybe leading a more human life because he's able to look beyond the statistical and see the real human individuality in each person to the extent that he falls in love and right he's doing these other things I wonder this does seem like a critique of that boredom in some ways as Doyle's giving it to us here or is it just that this is some sort of Superman who is so far above the problems of humanity that he's, he ends up... That, that's not how I read it, but I'm interested in how you all think of that, the role of boredom in this book. Because I'm thinking again of, you know, to take us back to, to our Middle March discussion from mm. last season, I was thinking about when we talked about Pascal's discussions of boredom and how a lot of human problems can be prevented by if people could just sit still in a room by themselves and Holmes seems unable to do that. Right. He's, he's there and he's like, okay, I got to shoot up some cocaine cause I'm too bored. Right. Or he's playing yeah, his violin all night or whatever. Right. He has these, he has the need for distraction and this sort of this crop rotation. Right. He always needs something <laughs> new coming in. And so I wonder if Doyle is, Suggesting to us that like there's something really wrong with Holmes, even though he's obviously in some ways an admirable character or has these admirable skills that as a person, he's very clearly falling short.
1: I, I mean, I, I like where you're going with that. And I, I think I do agree that there is a self-awareness about it on the part of the author and that, you know, beginning with the cocaine and ending with the cocaine is is a big gesture toward that. In the part that you read, obviously, he's sort of beginning to attempt to philosophize a little bit. Um, later, he also is looking out at the dock workers coming in and out of the light as they're waiting for uh, Small to emerge from the shipyard. And he says something about like, oh, it's kind of curious that all these people have a little tiny little immortal soul contained in their dirty bodies. But it must be, it must be true, right? That yeah, the Middlemarch discussion about sitting alone in the room is, is useful for me when you said that, Soren, because for me, reading... The beginning of this, when he's talking about how he abhors dull existence, he needs mental excitement. It's sort of like he's the best you're going to get out of like the values of earthliness and this, thisness and the world and thingy, thinginess, that if you always need to be doing something, if you're committed to work as one of your highest pursuits, and you're committed to doing things as opposed to being or thinking or meditating, that... The best you're going to become is like a processing machine. Does it matter if you see people as human? Even not really, because all you're going to do is attempt to solve problems. And like like Carl was saying, you're going to be a I guess a glorified AI. I think that that critique is is built into this.
2: I think to
1: differ slightly on
2: the points both of you are making, which I agree with. Holmes, that is most self-aware to me, is in his Faust quote hmm. that he gives us at the end of chapter twelve. Mm-hmm. Natur nur einen Mensch aus der Schuft, Zum würdigen Mann war und Zum Stoff something like nature only made you a human being, uh, but there was the stuff there for like a good person, a worthy person, or like a piece of trash. And I think Holmes is kind of saying that to himself as well. There's very much a sense that Doyle knows that someone like Holmes would know himself to be a Faustian character right he has made this sort of bargain to push emotion aside and run toward like all knowingness or all kinds of knowledge and that's why like Watson becomes our kind of like Gretchen character and certain modern adaptations really go into a more homoerotic you know nature between them because there is really a kind of need for each other there between the two but in that in that kind of faust plot it's not the knowledge that's going to save him at the end right it's the companionship and that quote in particular gives us a sense that like he's trying to as he oscillates he's trying to have some sense of what knowledge will amount to Mm. and choose something that isn't just an empty pursuit of knowledge, but a kind of fulfilling one or something. But in this story, you know, it's, he doesn't get
1: there. He goes back to the cocaine. Yeah. Within that, there's the question we asked regarding a canticle of Leibwitz too, about what kind of knowledge a monastery is containing. Is it knowledge about how to build better things and create better things and know more about materiality and things around us? And to, I mean, there's obviously great, utilitarian good to be got from that, but ultimately then what are we left with? There's been a there's been a critique of like general mid and late nineteenth century culture that it you know it's the birth in many ways of modern scientific inquiry. Not the birth, the we'll say the apogee maybe. I don't know, that's wrong too, but the march toward modern (laughs) scientific inquiry. Thank you. (laughs) And yet this is a very Nietzschean critique like where's the theological writer of the 19th century? Where's the great theologist of the 19th century and theologian, I should say? And that question is sort of up in the air.
0: It's funny that you mention great theologians of the 19th century, Friedrich, because <laughs> yeah. I wanted to to revisit a point that Carl made a little bit earlier, which is that there's a point in, near the end of the story where Holmes is talking about human beings as individuals versus human beings as sort of aggregates or statistics. This is what he says. He's quoting a man named um, Winwood Reed, he says, he remarks that while the individual man is an insoluble puzzle, in the aggregate he becomes a mathematical certainty. You can, for example, never foretell what any one man will do, but you can say with precision what an average number will be up to. Individuals vary, but percentages remain constant. So says the statistician, which is a sort of nice here end of the lesson for us. But... <laughs> What that put me in the mind of is, is this wonderful passage from The Sickness Unto Death by Kierkegaard, or Anticlimicus, the Kierkegaard pseudonym, and in it he's talking about how men of the 19th century are really desirous of turning themselves into statistics or a conglomerate, because they hope that by doing so, they can evade the judgment of God upon them. Because you can't judge a a mass of people. You can only judge the individual. And so by people sort of hiding themselves within these statistics, and this is kind of a theme in some of Kierkegaard's work in The Present Age or Two Ages, he talks about sort of the conglomeration of people into this mass. And it's an interesting meeting point of these two texts, uh, you know, thinking about the 19th century as a time where Mass humanity is starting to become more thought of as a thing. People are thought of now in these statistical categories, and so this is a kind of an alternate approach to that idea. And he seems to recognize. Holmes seems to recognize here. Well, individuals are eccentric, but we can kind of draw back and see the scatter plot of humanity, and then go from there and try to figure it out. It's almost like an the other end approach of it from from the one that anticlimacus takes in the sickness unto death. There's something there though of the evasion of responsibility on Holmes's part even as he's he's not the one committing the crimes obviously but there's a certain evasion of responsibility for the conclusions that he's drawing on his cases because he can just point back to the statistic this is just what the model says right we don't need <laughs> we don't need to account for the eccentricities of the individual we just figure out okay what is the average person going to do here we go we anticipate that we catch them and then we go from there. What's lacking, maybe, and this sounds stupid as I'm even formulating in my brain, but I'm going to roll with it for a minute. What's missing is the, the t- detective's ethical duty to the criminal <laughs> as he catches them. I don't know. Does that exist? I'm not sure. Sure. Uh, <laughs> right? It's like Miranda rights. <laughs> or something like that. Like, we'll explain for Okay, I'm just thinking like. <laughs> It's one thing to just sort of say, okay, here's the mo- we plugged in the model, we're going to catch this person. And versus I have figured out who you are and why you're committing these crimes and I've found you and I've- I I've deduced that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what seems to be lacking here. And I don't know if that is an actual ethical duty. That's why I said it's kind of weird and out there, but there's something to that. That Holmes is curiously lacking in any sort of bond to the people that he's hunting mm-hmm. down. And maybe that's a good thing, you know, you don't want to stare too long into the abyss, but there's also something kind of weird about it, right? That there isn't really a curiosity about the the moral or ethical dimensions of what's going on. It's merely, okay, let's figure out what the averages say and go from there.
2: Okay, I was unsure where you were going with this, Sarn, in terms of the ethical duty, but you reminded me of Porfiry Petrovich in Crime and Punishment, The Investigator, Who very clearly in that form of mystery is very much indebted to this sense of duty to Raskolnikov. He has to understand causality, not just functionality behind murder, right? And we do get a new type of investigator who's outside of the police in homes who is looking at people without unnecessarily any form of psychological causality and there's just a functionality to who can or could commit the crime and someone like Kierkegaard would say there's a loss there of some kind of existential confrontation of who a killer is and why they kill right and that's why people read true crime or Crime books in some sense. So say a lot of um, writers of mysteries, right? It's there's the why question is Somehow bigger than the how question a lot of people subscribe to that way of looking at it So I think I get a little bit more of what you're saying now if that makes sense
1: So are you both are you both suggesting that I can stand the jackboot pressed upon my neck if the person doing it Understands me and sees who I am rather than if they think of me as a statistic
0: yeah no I think there's something to that I
1: think there's something to that I wouldn't go I wouldn't necessarily go that far but I mean overstating it on purpose
2: (laughs) no yeah and that's that's the um, benefit to someone like Holmes whatever your cause may be he's out to stop you quicker and faster through just looking at the function of what you're doing and how to stop it you know so
1: which does fly then in the, the face of, yeah, your expectation of like, we're looking for motive, we're looking for reasons someone would do this right. psychologically. What's interesting then in the mystery genre, because even in this book, we still get the like long denouement of someone telling the story about why they did something, right? That takes up like the longest chapter in yes. this book. Yes. <laughs> And Holmes being like,
0: after the word, being like,
2: oh, I knew all of that. Yeah. It's like, well, you should have told us that. Well, okay, can
0: we can we press on that for a minute? Because I was struck yeah. in this book, you know, we think, oh, what an impressive guy Holmes is. Does he actually do anything in this book? Like, <laughs> he saw, he figures yeah. out how they got in to kill Bartholomew. And then, like, yeah. other than that, it's like there's a bunch of legwork that other people are doing to, like, trail these things. He, I guess he figures out the mystery of the boat. But, like, he doesn't actually solve the act. The mystery itself right that's just sort of he catches the criminal and then the criminal sort of explains everything again in this long dynamo. so I think it's fascinating yeah. I, li- I liked it a lot actually but I think it's a fascinating structure to the story but I think we're meant to believe that he truly did figure all of these things out and therefore capture
2: but we don't get a lot
0: of that work though we don't see it explained on the page, right? We just kind of see it happen. We get the
1: suggestions, yeah, of like, "Oh, you think those are child's feet, Watson?" Well, you know, you idiot, nothing. and yeah, <laughs> you don't know where these darts from the blowgun come from. Well, I do, and I'll tell you later. But first, you need to think about it on your own. Like, you can just see the interjections from Conan Doyle in there.
2: To uh, Holmes's defense, I would say that that is how AI feels sometimes when it's right about things, like. um ai feels in scare quotes well to abstract from like murder for a second like in chess where it's like very clear that the ai is extremely smart it'll make a move that seems whatever difficult to understand to uh, even a good chess player and then lo and behold it was like leagues ahead of the best players you see later so maybe that's what
1: we're meant to take Holmes <laughs> is doing in some way that's just a very generous way of looking at it. I agree, Carl, that, yeah, we're meant to take homes as, as knowing all of this in advance. There is then the matter of Tonga, the uh, offensive depiction of the Andaman Islander who comes to London with Jonathan Small and the maybe like small details of uh, of knowledge about Hinduism and Buddhism and South and East Asian culture that get brought up. For instance, one of the members of the, the gang of four will maybe inauspiciously call them is Muhammad Singh who is is for people who know about the Sikhs and about Muslims would know Muhammad and Singh aren't names that go together right those are two different religious traditions and it just doesn't matter to the world of this book because it's not about having total knowledge of your empire and total knowledge of on Conan Doyle's part it's just about producing someone who seems to have total knowledge and so I guess my question is like We get the long denouement of Jonathan Small, we get Tonga falling into the river dead and sinking into the mud of the Thames alongside the treasure that they've recovered from India. And Carl, you mentioned something about like these questions about racial passing that kind of come up in this is how these colonial characters come in and disrupt that perfect knowledge in some way or do they do they? do they make us think differently about holmes and watson well i mean i mean it's worth talking about like the
2: social and racial imaginary of someone like holmes and and watson to a lesser extent right but i was thinking of a specific passage where holmes is like explicating based on like the peg leg or or the wooden leg in some sense what must have happened or what kind of person it must have been and this person like appeared of a certain race i think to the, the onlookers so he de- he deduces there thereby that it must have been a certain race but i mean like it's just inconceivable to him in his deductive framework here that there's a thing called racial passing that mm-hmm. definitely exists so it just struck me that there's something going on with um, empire as you're saying and i'll turn it to my more anglophilic colleagues here <laughs> who know more about this than me Race and empire, and obviously the extreme stratification of like social and racial hierarchy in England at this time mm-hmm. um, is something kind of at play. and it, it weirdly works to Holmes's like deductive abilities in terms of his typology, like we were saying before, but clearly um, surpasses the things he can imagine at multiple points. And I think like as a mystery writer, like you kind of have to do some of that, I think. But I also think it's just kind of like an omission maybe on Doyle's part too.
1: Before Soren jumps in, I just want to refute the notion of anglophilia and, and say it. sometimes disgust and attraction can be really close to one another. I'd say anglophobia might be more <laughs> as where my interests you are, lie. Yeah. You're an angloph- anglophile and an anglophobe?
0: No, just the latter. But, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but there can be a lot of interest in that. Carl, you use the word stratification, which I find interesting because it suggests not merely a duality, which it would be, I think, easy to read into the book of like, oh, the white people are great and the, right. you know, the the natives, in air quotes there, are are not great or whatever. But there really is a, a really interesting hierarchy sort of that's set up and some interesting subversions, even if they're happening, you know, in some very clunky ways in the text of the book, because it strikes me that to my mind at least the most sympathetic relationships in the book are between Jonathan Small and to some extent Tonga maybe less so but like but at the core of the story as we learn at the end is this sort of friendship or partnership that Jonathan and Small has with these three Sikh men who take him into their Mm. confederation to commit murder and steal. Um, But it really is a sort of an honor among thieves situation because they say, and they follow through on this. It seems like really Jonathan small takes this very seriously. We're in this together, right? The the things that we do, that's, that is what the sign of the four is. There are four of them, and they will always act and work together as four. That's why he throws the jewels into the Thames at the end, because he can't have them. He can't possibly make them work for the benefit of the other three, and so no one else gets to have them, and so he throws them away, which is a marked contrast between the friendships or the, the confederation you see between Sholto... And Morstan and then Sholto and Morstan with Small because they essentially trick him in taking the jewels. And then Sholto takes them away from Morstan as well and wants to keep them from himself. And so there's a sense in which, I mean, Doyle is clearly you know, suggesting that there's a deeper sense of friendship or indebtedness between Small, this sort of lower class white person yeah. coming to Britain, and these Sikh men who have a sense of honor and a sense of you know versus these more upper class white men who are just trying to rob and steal. So there's there's some critique in there, even though I think, you know, I think we can all recognize it's a pretty clunky one and it's mixed up with all these other things that we find pretty unfortunate these days, especially Tonga, who's more of the sort of barbarous like native, versus the more maybe the more civilized Sikh characters or something like that. But there's some attempt on Doyle's part to suggest that this friendship is somehow deeper than what's going on with these relationships between between the white characters. I'm interested in how that's kind of playing out at the end of the book. We get it all in this denouement at the, at the very end, but mm-hmm. it, it, it's pretty forceful when it hits us, I think.
1: It is forceful, yeah, and I think that there's a, a marked contrast, as you're saying deliberately, between Sholto and Small and his compatriots. There's a the sort of classic, as Carl mentioned a long time ago at the beginning of the episode— colony metropole thing going on that's set up by the story Small tells about um, the Indian mutiny happening in 1857 and kind of being stuck in India as all of this is happening. People are are killing each other and uh, British people are attempting to exert control back over a rebelling population by force. And that comes back years later to the metropole in the form of Tonga, the killer who kills without discrimination, as Small says, he wouldn't have killed Sholto, right? But Tonga had to do it. Just as the ill-gotten imperial treasure has to be buried at the heart of the Metropole under the Thames, so too does Tonga's body, right? I think there's an interesting parallel, maybe, that might open this up a little bit for us between Tonga and Holmes, when... Small is telling a story about how long they were in London, right? Because the two of them were in London for quite some time waiting and waiting to find out where this treasure was hidden and how to access it. Small tells them that they earned a living by exhibiting poor Tonga at fairs and other such places as the Black Cannibal. He would eat raw meat, dance his war dance, and so they always had a hat full of pennies after a day's work. Kind of using his exotic appearance to 19th century urbanites to capitalize on that and when we begin the story proper the novel proper we're aware that A Study in Scarlet exists in the world of this novel and that Watson is writing about their adventures for money and that's how they're earning their income as well as by sort of parading Holmes as an exotic character around for the English public and look at A Study in Scarlet he solved this isn't he sort of a strange person and Watson is self-consciously doing that again with the sign of four and if we look ahead to the future then of of these novels Watson's exhibiting homes for curious public and you know the I don't have a comment on the sort of racial issue at hand here which is the issue but I think it does go hand in hand with the discussion we're having about knowledge types of knowledge and how a society values types of knowledge that there's also this sort of cheap entertainment value to it that the best watson can do is hope to to make money off of it by just selling them as stories rather than gleaning anything more useful than that out of them
0: that's a fascinating i i think that unlocks something maybe for me as a new way of understanding what's going on in the story because there's the implication when jonathan small is talking about this that they are very clearly playing these things up, right? He mm-hmm. made him eat raw meat because it's like, oh, it's cannibalism, right? Um, and it's like not even, it's just, you know, whatever, cow meat or something. And it's like, it seems like something that Tonga wouldn't do on his own. It's like he's doing mm-hmm. it for the sake of the performance. So maybe that's part of what's going on here with Watson's telling of this, of like, maybe that's why there's so much cocaine. And it's like, you know, <laughs> Holmes himself is this character that's being displayed. And so you have to, you gotta give them the good stuff. You gotta give the audience what they want, which is Holmes being this automaton, this weirdo, right? It's not <laughs> Holmes doing something normal. It's like, I, I didn't sleep all night. I stayed up pacing, thinking about, you know, it's like all the weird stuff. You have to play up those ticks for the audience, which then sort of loops back around since it's he's writing about the stories within the story. And then I'm not gonna push that because it gets weird, but it is that sort of interesting element of performance going on in in Holmes as a character on display that's i think that's a really fascinating insight for you.
1: just as there's the demand for a total knowledge that is material and involves collecting a bunch of information and storing it away in the hopes that it might be useful there's this insistence that if you're going to be giving us something it better be novel right Going hand-in-hand hand with the idea of collecting and having total knowledge is that everything you're doing has to be increasing that knowledge and has to be increasing by being novel, by having novelty. And this is another instance of that, is whether novelty because it's exotic or novelty because it's behavior that is difficult to understand.
2: To go back to your point, Friedrich, about the like burial of the treasure, the losing of the treasure back at the heart of the Metropole, only at the expense of... A colonized subjects death or something that reminds me a lot of like France Fanon's Wretches of the Earth the idea that like violence is linked with knowledge and it's linked with decolonization um, sort of inextricably and just in the the mystery genre that's kind of an interesting thing to always think about right why is there always um, a pursuit of knowledge linked with a increase in violence and the metropole colony aspect of that I think plays interestingly, into Holmes and other characters. But Tonga in particular and The Lost Treasure really gets to this idea that Fanon brings up that the lump in proletariat, or the sort of lowest of the classes, has this kind of utility in some way of discovering violence and reminding the colonizer that colonization requires violence. And getting out of it might also be this act of violence that might be kind of the first or maybe only means of thinking about escape right for
0: certain people that's that's a good point carl before we go can we talk about one character whose name has not come up yet on this podcast which would be a crime to let go without mentioning him because he is of course the real hero of this story, the greatest character. And that is... The dog Toby? No, the dog Toby. The dog Toby, too. It's an underrated dog. No, but, but I want to talk just for a minute, if we can, about Athelney Jones, who is this other detective who's on the case here. He's Scotland Yard's <laughs> finest. And uh, he keeps coming in, butting into the story and completely messing things up. And then Combs is having to, like, kind of correct all of his errors. What do you all make of Athelney Jones in this uh, is he a character, and I don't remember him being in any other story. I don't know if he ever comes back off the top of my head. But he's a really wonderful character. He's very comic, and I think that's part of it, is he's providing this comic relief and this comic contrast to Holmes, who's very careful, wants to think through everything. Athelney Jones sort of blunders in, makes the first guess he comes across, and like goes with it, But but at the same time, I'm interested in the complications here because he actually ends up being a very valuable member of the case. Holmes seems yeah. to think relatively highly of him, given kind of what a screw-up he is. And he's still around at the end, sort of blustering through. And, and at the end, there's this comment made, and it's like, okay, uh, Watson, you get the girl. Jones is going to get all the credit. I've got my cocaine. That's enough for me, right? But I'm wondering what you all think about Athelney Jones or like what his role is in this story as the sort of— Because I'm thinking about it somewhat in terms of thought versus action, right? Holmes has this really nice set of thoughts that are going on. And almost, not quite, but it almost seems like that would be enough for him. Just to know what happened and how it was done would almost be satisfactory to him. And Nathaniel Jones is on the opposite end. He's like, he just wants to make an arrest, right? He's, he locks up the <laughs> into all of all of Bartholomew's household. He just like puts them all in jail because he thinks they're all guilty, right? And then he goes and corrects himself. But he doesn't, by the end, sort of blunder into important breaks in the case, and he, he sort of helps with the logistics of everything. So I'm wondering what you think his purpose is in the story and why he's there and what he might be telling us about that relationship between thought and action that seems kind of important in the book
1: you know as like an ironic representation of police officers and police work he s- seems to me still to stand the test of time and if we've talked about holmes as someone who's representing a a novel approach to thinking about behavior in, in the 19th century at least as something that's you can base on material observation and collection of knowledge that if holmes might be too steeped in the world of statistics Anthony Jones seems to be too beholden to the world of statistics and that he's there to make an arrest. It doesn't matter if the, arrest is cr- the arrested person is the correct person. It just matters that an <laughs> arrest has been made, that an announcement can go out that an arrest has been made, and that something can go in the ledger book that says an arrest was made. And dealing with the truth in that has no bearing whatsoever. If Holmes we were Critical of for being the person wearing the jackboot on your neck that doesn't understand you. That <laughs> anthony Jones might understand you, but like he's just putting jackboots on as many necks as he can, right? Like he's just there to, to get people. And Holmes says, well, to his credit, the dragnet works because he did catch Lall rao He got one person, right? Be- better that a thousand innocent men are jailed in Athelny Jones' world than one uh, guilty man goes free. Um, so in that that respect, he's an interesting character and at least as a comic, darkly comic character, uh, maybe to us now, um, it makes sense to me.
2: Thelney Jones might be one of Conan Doyle's other sort of prototypical uh, mystery genre characters. In this case, prototypical of figures like Mr. Bean or the very much undersung adventures of pluto nash the haphazard detective who only literally or metaphorically stumbles upon correct things and again a, a good opposition to someone like holmes a portrait of epistemology not as the winning away of falsity toward fact, which we can all do by a rigorous tried and true scientific method, but instead a world where absurdity and doubt clouds everything. And only through luck do we ever truly stumble on something that's right or true or lasting in some way. And I think both types uh, appeal to people. There's a real sense that
0: both things are at play out there. He'd fit in in like a Chesterton novel, right? There's oh, yeah. like that yeah. that yeah. wacky absurdity to it. But but I also think I think that's really interesting, Carl. Noting the absurdity because you're right that Doyle is attuned to that to some extent. You know, one of the things that Holmes appreciates about Jones in the course of the investigation is that because he arrested a bunch of the wrong people. The the real criminal Jonathan Small doesn't realize that they're on to him, and so there's like yes. he gives them this like buffer. But then there's also these moments of just chance that happen, and like and chaos mm-hmm. that enter into the investigation. Toby, our aforementioned wonderful dog, is on the scent. Um, they think they're going to find Tonga, and instead, what happens is like they run down the wrong trail because it's like this I don't know, it's like turpentine or something, and like. He follows it all the way to the to the turpentine like factory or whatever, right? They end up in the wrong place and they have to backtrack. And then when they're chasing the boat, they maybe would have gotten there in time to get the treasure, if this other bar- this like barge hadn't swung out in front of them and blocked them, right? And so Doyle is like, I think he's at least somewhat aware, maybe more so than Holmes himself is that there are these elements of chance that happen in any investigation and these moments of chaos that we can't control. And so. It's one of those things that keeps the story from being too sterile is that there are these moments of chaos that get injected. And Athelney Jones is one of those. He's like a chaos agent. He's causing these disruptions that then end up being serendipitous in their result. And, yes, I actually really like the comparison to Mr. Bean. It's like this charmed fool, right, who's sort of stumbling through life, but he gets it right every once in a while just through sheer I don't know, chance or something, right? And he's protected from the bad things in life. He's like a holy fool, almost, or something. With that ridiculous note, I think we'll end um, this episode. Thanks for joining us as we made our way through this lesser known, but I think really interesting Holmes story with all of you. We're going to keep pushing um, our mystery theme in some new, uh, and I, I think exciting directions next time with my pick, uh, which is Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress which I'm very excited to talk about uh, with you all. And then after that, we'll hit Carl's pick, which is Dorothy B. Hughes' In a Lonely Place. And then just a little preview for you. One week after that episode comes out, we will have a special bonus episode, a double feature film discussion pod on the film versions of both Devil in a Blue Dress and In a Lonely Place, um, starring... Both of them, you know, great actors of cinema Denzel Washington in Devil in a Blue Dress and Humphrey Bogart in In a Lonely Place. Are we going to watch The Sign of the Four in any way? Uh, is <laughs> there a sign of like the four? We can throw that in there. We'll see. There's like 20 uh, versions of it. I mean, you go watch 20 of them, Carl, and report back to us here. Um, is there a Basil Rathbone version? Because I'll watch that. Um, but I'm not watching Benedict Cumberbatch. Sorry. Oh, come um, on. That's we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll throw a little, a little bonus content there for you. We'll see. Uh, But we'll be back with those uh, in a few weeks as well. So uh, we hope you'll join us for all of those adventures and misadventures as we go along. But until next time, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out.
2: Meow meow meow, 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 Oh, those Russians.